You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 24th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme, we'll get more information on the rise in violence in the West Bank. And... Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! We'll find out why Malaysians are taking to the streets in support of Palestine. Then... Bother at borders in the Balkans. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the region, and I'll be telling you how countries are pulling down the shutters on the Schengen area. And we'll be in Istanbul to examine the timing of Turkey's ratification of Sweden's NATO membership. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Violence is on the rise in the West Bank. The Israeli army has been pursuing Palestinian militants in the aftermath of the Hamas attack from Gaza on October the 7th. More than 90 Palestinians have been killed in the Israeli-occupied territory in the past two weeks, some dying in violent anti-Israel protests and in some instances in attacks by Jewish settlers. Well, Sari Bashi is a programme director at Human Rights Watch in the West Bank, where she joins me from now. Sari, many thanks for coming on the programme. I think it's really important to lay out political and geographical differences here. The Palestinian Authority governs parts of the West Bank that are not under full Israeli control. President Mahmoud Abbas is the leader of the Palestinian Authority, or the PA, and the Fatah political party. And the Gaza Strip is run by Fatah's rival, Hamas, which was responsible for the October the 7th attack on Israel. Why then is the West Bank coming under attack? Well, the West Bank and Gaza are part of the Palestinian territory that's been recognized as a single unit. It's certainly where 5 million Palestinians live and they see themselves as Palestinian as opposed to being necessarily from the West Bank or Gaza. Um, many of them are refugees from what is now Israel. It's 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 one people, one land in that sense. Um, the violence that escalated so terribly on October 7th didn't come from uh, a vacuum. Um, there has been um, very difficult conditions, both in the West Bank and in Gaza, for the past decade, for the past several decades, um, stemming from Israeli systematic repression of Palestinians in what Human Rights Watch and others have called the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. So it looks different in different parts of the Palestinian territory, um, but the overall problem is the maintenance of uh, the domination of Israeli Jews over Palestinians throughout the space. In Gaza, we've seen that through a punishing closure for the past 16 years that has prevented people from traveling to access medical care, to see families, uh, to move in any way. And in the West Bank, uh, it has been most noticeably through forcible displacement of Palestinian communities to make way for Israeli settlers uh, and more day-to-day violence in the form of unlawful use of force uh, against Palestinians, both by settlers and soldiers. Could this potentially open up another front in the conflict? 
I mean, you know, I, I one thing that I, I want to encourage people to remember is that um, just because um, settler violence and unlawful attacks against Palestinians are not in the news, it doesn't mean that it's quiet here. Before October 7th, this had been the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank in, in recent history. And um, it hasn't been quiet uh, since October 7th. L let me just orient us on, on where we are. Um, on October 7th, Hamas-led gunmen from Gaza carried out unspeakable war crimes against Israeli civilians, massacring families, taking children and others hostage, and engaging in acts that are very reprehensible, uh, and, and the human mind struggles to comprehend. In response, the Israeli military um, launched massive airstrikes on uh, the Gaza Strip that so far has killed many more than 2,000 children. The West Bank throughout that time has gotten worse in terms of violence. So the settler violence, um, is Israeli settlers coming to Palestinian communities, um, either destroying property or in some cases um, hurting and killing people, has gotten worse. And it's state-backed settler violence. Um, in some cases, the Israeli uh, military, Israeli soldiers stand by while uh, settlers come to Palestinian villages, towns, farming communities, set fire to property, uh, uproot olive trees, or physically harm people. And in some cases, they even participate. Um, since October 7th, 95 Palestinians have been killed either by Israeli settlers or by Israeli soldiers, including 28 children. And in um, the Bedouin communities in an area of the West Bank that the Israeli government um, wants for uh, settlements, Area C, 607 people have been displaced just since October 7th. So it's not quiet now, and I, I hope it doesn't further escalate. Mm. Now, we know that there have been demonstrations in, in the West Bank. Are these, I mean, we know that they are anti-Israeli, but are they also anti-Abbas and the PA because they co cooperate with Israel on security matters? You know, in Ramallah, there was a demonstration where uh, protesters were um, expressing significant criticism of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian police dispersed it. Just for people who don't know, um, in uh, cities in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority has a police force that operates. And outside of those cities, the Israeli military is the um, the, the force that uses uh, threats of force. And the PA uh, is run by the Fatah faction, which is a rival of the Hamas faction that rules Gaza. So when there's support for um, Hamas within the West Bank, the Palestinian police take notice, especially when it's accompanied by criticism of the Palestinian Authority. Mm. Uh, we know that Israel's been setting up volunteer security squads. Have they been participating in the attacks on the, on the West Bank? You know, it's hard to say because the settler violence um, very much preceded uh, October 7th. And in some cases, it has been people who are part of security details for settler for settlements. In some cases, it's been just, you know, people we don't even necessarily know who they are. We don't know who they are because they're very rarely uh, arrested or prosecuted for these these crimes. Um, Israeli the, the Israeli government has uh, transferred 600,000 Israeli civilians into the occupied 
West Bank and established um, Jewish-only settlements for them, um, often displacing Palestinians in the process. That's a war crime. Um, settlers should not be uh, in the West Bank. They should be safely removed back to Israel. But to make matters worse, the Israeli government um, is engaging in what's essentially state-sanctioned violence, certainly by not preventing settlers from attacking Palestinians and in some cases by actively encouraging it. That's one of the ways in which the Israeli government is furthering the displacement of Palestinians from their land. Um, in some cases, people leave um, even when they're not fenced off from their land because they're afraid. Just in the interest of uh, in the interests of balance, are these settlers perhaps in some cases acting in self-defense? Well, I'm not saying that there aren't times when settlers act in self-defense, but when when settlers leave settlements and go deep into Palestinian villages with weapons and prevent Palestinian farmers from harvesting olives or uh, spray graffiti on Palestinian uh, property or set fire to Israeli car to uh, Palestinian cars, that's not self-defense. Certainly, settlers have a right to be safe, and they should be safe. They should not be attacked. They are civilians. And the way to keep them safe is for the Israeli government to safely remove them from the West Bank and and bring them back to Israel where they ha- where they are lawfully present. Sorry, thank you very much indeed. That was Sari Bashi of Human Rights Watch. Now here's Sophie Monahan Coombs with the day's other news stories. Thanks, Georgina. Emmanuel Macron has arrived in Israel where he is expected to call for the resumption of a genuine peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. Over a two-day visit, the French president will meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and hold phone calls with the leaders of Egypt and Jordan. The United States has advised Israel to delay its ground offensive into the Gaza Strip to allow more time to negotiate the release of hostages held by Hamas. A US official told the Associated Press the release on Monday of two women held by the militant group was helped by mediation from Qatar. And South Korea's military says it has detained a boat carrying defectors from the north. The small wooden vessel was stopped near the city of Sokcho after crossing the sea border between the countries. The South Korean news agency reported four people were on board. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Sophie. As many as 20,000 people are expected to join a protest in Kuala Lumpur today in support of Palestinians. Bridget Welsh is an honorary research associate with the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute in Malaysia. She joins me now from Kuala Lumpur. Bridget, many thanks for coming on the show. Why is pro-Palestinian feeling so high in Kuala Lumpur? I think there are two main reasons. First of all, uh, Malaysians have followed these issues in Palestine and Israel for a long time. And they see it within a particular framework of uh, a Jewish versus um, Muslim conflict. Uh, They also see the issues of Gaza as one of being uh, very seriously uh, impacted in terms of the colonial colonization of 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 that area as well as a dispossession and a sense of apartheid of that of what has happened in Gaza. And this has been a frame um, that has been deeply embedded in Malaysian society um, across different ethnic communities uh, because uh, Malaysia sees this conflict and these issues uh, without the kind of understanding of some of the players to the same degree of nuance that may, uh, may be the fact for people who are in the region. The second reason is that um, 
there is a politics around Gaza, so domestically within Malaysia. So uh, the current government led by Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim cannot be seen as being soft on Gaza because he's being challenged by Islamist political party that was taking a much more uh, sense, more confrontational uh, uh, position. And one is arguing for more stronger responses to what is happening. So as a consequence, we see we've had three, this will be the third ra big rally over the issues in Gaza. Uh, we have a situation in Malaysia where there, the social media has has had been very vibrant and extremely anti-Israel. Uh, and so it, it, their political conditions within Malaysia itself lead to these types of responses, as well as genuine concern about the serious humanitarian situation, especially in Gaza. So might the government's position, uh, the, the implications of the government's position be bad for Malaysia's relationship with Western allies? Well, I think, to be fair to the government, the initial position that the Anwar government took was one that was very nuanced. It has emphasized the importance of ceasefire. Um, it emphasizes the importance of the humanitarian um, access and the humanitarian corridor. Um, it has talked about the particular history of dispossession and the impact um, of, on the on Gaza, uh, but it hasn't been one that has been, been uh, seen in these kind of uh, uh, very direct black and white type of colors. But as their political pressure and as events have taken uh, taken unfolded in the last few weeks, we can see that the Malaysian government's position has uh, become stronger um, from the perspective of the rhetoric and the discussions, um, in part because of political pressures and, and genuine anger and concern with Malaysian society. And I don't think Malaysians are alone in this. I think the world over, many people are very uh, concerned about what is happening in Gaza. And I also think that that is very true in parts of the Muslim particularly in parts of the Muslim world, who have a very different framing. So how does this impact the West? I do think it does put pressure. Um, Anwar Ibrahim is seen as being, uh, has been portrayed as being too West. And so as a consequence, this has also led to a kind of um, a, a strengthening of positions and perhaps also showcasing his credentials on dealing with the issues of, uh, on Gaza. Um, he's made numbers of trips um, and he's spoken out on this repeatedly in the public press. So th this particular rally this evening is an extension of that. Mm. Uh, has it has it spilled over into the business environment and in terms of um, uh, the relationship with particular countries? I think not yet uh, from the perspective of uh, an impact. But keep in mind that uh, the position that the United States and many Western countries have taken have long fed anti-Western sentiment. And there's, it's not something that's new just recently. It has been going on for decades. And I think that there are genuine concerns and a lot of anti-Western rhetoric and, and feeling um, about the positions that are being taken during this conflict. And generally during these demonstrations, is there a feeling of anti-Semitism and are they generally peaceful? Yes, the the rallies are very peaceful, um, the, despite the fact that the emotions are very strong. Um, I think there has been, uh, uh, yes, there is anti-Semitism. Uh, there is a perception uh, of, of Israel without a recognition of the nuances and the differences among the Jewish faith and the Jewish positions on what's happening in the conflict. Um, there has been some discussion of that, but it's very hard to change framings that have been deeply embedded that don't have 
have the nuance. Um, I think there is a sense if it's easier for people to see these issues in a in a very black and white perspective, mm-hmm. as opposed to one uh, that is that is complicated and complex as we see the realities on the ground um, in the circumstances of what has happened. But I think that um, uh, one has to recognize that the expression of uh, Malaysian anger um, comes uh, comes from very deep concern. And I think we can also see a large philanthropic movement in Malaysia to provide humanitarian assistance, uh, which also has been a lot historical in, in its in its origins. And I think that uh, this also comes from a place of how they see this particular conflict. Bridget, thank you very much indeed. That's Bridget Walsh in Kuala Lumpur there. This is The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now, Slovenia has reinstated border controls with Croatia and Hungary. The former prime minister has called on Slovenians to arm themselves. Well, joining me more now for more from Ljubljana is uh, our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. Hello to you, Guy. Hi there, Georgie. Now, I've got to say that juxtaposition you just made there sounded rather worrying, didn't it? Well, it did, but I'm sure you're going to unpack it for us and (laughs) tell us exactly what's going on at the borders now. Well, it depends on the place. Now, I've got to tell you straight away, in case anybody's uh, <laughs> thinking that Slovenians, this, this usually fairly mild country, it has to be said, that they think that Slovenians are suddenly rising up and, uh, you know, pulling out the old AK-47s from the attic or from under the beds or anything like that. That isn't happening. But what is happening is that, for example, on the main Slovenia to Croatia border crossing, People are being directed to pass through the old immigration booths, which haven't been in use since March. And that's when border controls were lifted following Croatia's accession to the Schengen area. And to be frank, everybody was loving this because the border queues between Slovenia and Croatia um, were (laughs) terrible to behold, particularly in the summer. And it would add literally hours to a journey in the summer sometimes. And uh, everybody was rejoicing that they were gone. Now, just a few months later, they're back. Um, It's also happening between Italy and Slovenia, although what seems to be happening there is the police are letting the traffic flow, uh, but uh, pulling people over for random checks, which aren't exactly that random, because apparently woe betide should you have tinted windows or, say, a van which has opaque sides, because the police really want to look inside those vehicles in case there's anybody that's in there that shouldn't be in there. And so what's the motivation for, for all, all, all of this kerfuffle around the border? Well, it, uh, it's really a domino effect, if you like. So that the first country to declare that it was going to reinstitute some sort of border controls was Italy. And that's officially a response to the heightened terrorism alert following the Hamas attack on Israel. Now, of course, with Italy saying it was going to institute controls with Slovenia, Slovenia then followed up with its own controls with uh, Croatia and, and Hungary. And, you, you know, this is all sort of following on and it's one country copying what another country is doing. Though I have to say, this year we've seen rising concern about the number of people coming up the so-called Balkan route and making irregular crossings or being in countries without having a regularised status. And some of the statistics, for example, suggest that uh, the numbers have tripled this year, and particularly since Croatia joined the Schengen area. Now, to what degree that's coincidence and to what degree that's correlation is is open to debate. Um, But the, the idea of having some sort of border controls has been floated 
more than once recently, and Slovenia had even instituted police patrols close to border crossings a few weeks ago because it was concerned that Croatia wasn't doing enough to stop irregular migration. Um, so this is the next logical step, if you like, but it's not a particularly welcome one. No. Well, let's return to, to this idea of Slovenians taking up arms, which they're not doing, as you point out, but actually there has been a call for that. Yeah, and this is Prime Minister, former Prime Minister, thank goodness, Janusz Janša, returning to type. So um, during the floods in August and the reconstruction thereafter, everybody was rather surprised, but um, happily so, that uh, Mr Janša was uh, playing the role of uh, being the cooperative sort, but he's now back to being the the crazy maker in chief. And uh, he put out a tweet suggesting that people arm themselves legally in response to the heightened terror alert and the situation on the Balkan route, uh, stating that the government was incapable of protecting Slovenia and the people, of course, had a national duty to protect the homeland. Now, neither the government nor the president are impressed. They've both put out statements uh, saying that such talk is actually damaging to Slovenia's young democracy and prosecutors are actually investigating what Mr Janša put on his social media channels. Hmm. And uh, how long will the border restrictions last? So officially 10 days, and those 10 days started on Saturday. Uh, But, you know, Austria still has temporary restrictions with Slovenia that date back to the 2015 refugee crisis. And Slovenia has been quite disgruntled with this, as you can imagine, uh, that every time Austria renews these so-called temporary restrictions from eight years ago, it's gone to the European Union, the European Commission, and said this really isn't on, this isn't what the Schengen area is all about, but those restrictions remain in place. So do we think these current restrictions are only going to be for 10 days. I've got to say, there's not a lot of optimists out there at the moment, Georgina. Guy, thank you very much indeed. That's Guy Delaunay in Ljubljana. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle Radio. back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan has submitted a bill approving Sweden's NATO membership bid to Parliament for ratification. Well, this follows Turkey's previous objections over Sweden's alleged harbouring of people whom Turkey sees as part of terrorist groups. Well, Ayla Jean Yakli is an Istanbul-based journalist and joins me on the line now. Uh, the ratification was promised for the beginning of this month. Why has the legislation only been sent to Parliament now, Ayla? 
Well, it's almost as if um, there was a game of uh, bluff going on between the U.S. and Turkey. Erdogan wants an exchange for this approval, um, U.S. congressional approval for the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. And while the Biden administration has expressed support for this, um, it hasn't come through yet. So Erdogan had been pressing for that. So that might be one reason for the delay. Uh, also, Parliament was in recess until the start of this month, so it has other legislative legislative priorities that it has had to deal with first. Um, but it's significant that it's come come to Parliament now. And how's Sweden reacted? Sweden um, has expressed some cautious optimism. They first want to see it passed through Parliament, it seems, before they um, express their, you know, full uh, sort of um, happiness over the um, deal. Because we, we do actually don't know when it's going to be voted on by the full assembly. It's with the Foreign Affairs Commission at present here in Ankara. Um, Hungary also initially opposed Sweden's membership of NATO. Mm -hmm. Uh, How soon do we think Budapest will ratify this now? I mean, clearly they will take Turkey's lead? Well, if the past is an indication, yes. Um, Hungary was also a holdout, like Turkey, on the Finnish bid to join NATO. Um, When Turkey approved that uh, application, Hungary followed suit quite quickly. Uh, The objections that Hungary has made have been less problematic, less complicated than those that Turkey had. Um, Turkey accused Sweden of supporting terrorists, um, of allowing for the burning of the Quran, and a number of other issues. Um, From what we've heard from Orban, the leader of Hungary, it's about respect. Um, He has sought more respect from Sweden. But the dispute doesn't seem to be quite as complicated with Hungary. Mm. Is Turkey still insisting that Sweden takes firmer action against uh, members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, that, that Turkey labels as terrorists? Absolutely. Turkey's not satisfied with what uh, Sweden has done to date, which has included new anti-terrorism laws um, and some prosecutions of people that Turkey has deemed terrorists. Uh, But Turkey does want more. But I think that it's important to remember here that more than the bilateral issues that have been at stake, it's more about these F-16s. Turkey needs new fighter jets as well as modernization kits for its aging fleet. And the U.S. U.S. has made it somewhat conditional on this approval of this of Sweden's NATO bid. That's the real get for Turkey. Mm. And just finally, in terms of timeline, uh, the next NATO foreign ministers meeting is on November the 28th and 9th. Do you think Sweden will be there? That's a great question. You know, a lot of it does depend on the kind of geopolitics, uh, Turkey, Turkey's sort of outreach through this um, is part of a broader reset that we're seeing in Turkish foreign policy. Erdogan has been trying to mend ties with Turkey's traditional Western partners. I'm sure nothing would make members of the NATO alliance happier than securing this approval for Sweden's bid before that meeting. Ela Yakli in Istanbul. Thank you very much indeed. Finally today, over the weekend, world leaders and ambassadors descended on Reykjavik for the Arctic Circle Assembly, the largest international gathering on the Arctic. 
This year's conference marked the 10th anniversary of the Arctic Council's watershed decision to grant observer status to six countries in the Asia-Pacific, including Japan. Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with His Excellency Takawaka Kaizo, Japan's ambassador in charge of Arctic affairs. Andrew asked Ambassador Kaizo to explain Japan's interest in the region. Our I mean, policy stands on three pillars. And the first is, first and foremost, is science. Second is international cooperation. And third, sustainable development. So sustainable development might uh, include some commercial activity, but uh, first and foremost is science. Have you found the, the actual Arctic countries, such as those represented here this week, are they, are they generally receptive to Japanese input? Is there any amount of defensiveness from them? In, in, no, no, I don't. In, in, in much the way that you might expect there could be from Japan, South Korea and China if Finland, Norway and Sweden started wanting to be influential in the South China Sea. You don't get any sort of pushback no, like no, that? No, at all. <laughs> no, not at all. For one thing, that there is a clear distinction in the Arctic Council uh, for the Arctic states and permanent members and observers. That distinction is very clear. Mm. So there is no no, no sense of uh, uneasiness Mm. I mean, on the part of the Arctic states about uh, we are, you know, constructing uh, in icebreaker ship. We even receive a kind of uh, advice about how to managing insertion. Some articles and colleagues of mine in the Arctic states uh, told me that insertion is just like an uh, you know, Olympic. It's a big international team. How to manage it is a challenge. You know, things like that. Is, hmm? is it more difficult for Japan to operate in the Arctic given that cooperating with Russia is, is much more difficult than it was two years ago? Does that make any difference to how Japan um, operates hmm. in the Arctic at all? Not because of Russia, but because lack of experience. You might know a person named Naomi Uemura, mm-hmm. who is a kind of uh, adventurous. He is a kind of uh, expert mm-hmm. of Arctic, but other than him, we don't have an established expert in the Arctic. We need to catch up ourselves. Well, just finally then, if, if you think ahead to 2024, we're already looking ahead to next year, where do you see for Japan the biggest opportunity in the Arctic? Or what's a particular thing you've, you think you might find yourself concentrating on? Well, as you know, that this year is the 10th anniversary mm-hmm. since we joined in the Arctic Council as an observer so in 2013. And uh, this the decade uh, gave us a lot of opportunities. And the important thing is that uh, our scientists are long exposed to the working groups of the Arctic Council, and they are eager to resume their participation. So I would say that this year and the next year, I mean, during the Norwegian chairship, mm-hmm. could make a big impact 
on resuming our participation in the Arctic. We have uh, good relations with Norwegian. So uh, I think that uh, we, when we are resuming, the, trying to resume the activities of the Arctic Council, that's a big juncture for us to move to the you know, next stage. It's a kind of a science diplomacy, mm. how to mobilize scientists. They need a kind of a domain to do their job. And Arctic Council working groups, they, and those other kind of a playing field for them. That was Takawaka Kaizo speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>